Good morning again. How's everyone doing? Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you could take them out and turn into Genesis chapter 3, there's an outline back there at the center doors at the worship counter uh, of the message. We could take that out. Going to continue in our series this morning, uh, Beginnings, Beginnings. And I have grandchildren, and my grandchildren are like any other children. They love to play hide-and-seek. And it's always fun to play hide-and-seek with little children, isn't it? Because they go and hide, and then you go and find them. And, and if the kids are little, you, you, when you're going to find them, you're searching for them, you say, I'm coming after them. And you mention them by name, and they begin to giggle as they hide behind that couch or that piece of furniture, right? And if they're real little, if you say, uh, if you're going after them, say, where are you? And they actually say, here I am. And they actually stand up there and, and stand. And sometimes you have a tendency when you're playing hide and seek with little ones, at least I do, maybe I'm different, to say, hey, you go and hide, and I wait till I go find them, right? But that game of hide and seek goes way back. The copyright of that game of hide and seek goes back to a couple named Adam and Eve. Uh, in the garden. And if you have your Bibles, I said, please turn to Genesis 3. We want to look at today the truth of finding God's grace. Three ways it is accomplished in our verses and passage we have today in eight, verses 8 through 13. Finding God's grace. The first one, number one, if you have your outlines ready, bring your sin to God. We have to bring our sin to God to find God's grace. Uh, let's read verses 8, 9, and 10. <clears throat> then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I mentioned to you last week that the name of God appears back to back is what we see here. Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh means the covenant keeping God, the God who hears and understands. Elohim means the, God, the majestic God, the majestic one is what it means. So what you have here, Yahweh Elohim, who's walking toward them in the, in the cool of the day. And it's an incredible picture that we have to picture in our minds. That Yahweh Elohim, the majestic one, the covenant-keeping God, the promise-keeper, is coming to them in the cool of the day. And don't think for a moment those first seven verses in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 1 through 7, uh, where we talked about the fall, that, that what was going on here in the garden, that God was somewhere in heaven, far off in heaven, while man was sitting here in the garden. This was God's garden. God created this garden. This was his. And God is everywhere present, right? He's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. So God was there. We don't know exactly what this means where it says he walks because God is spirit. And the Bible says those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Perhaps in this scene, what we find here, God was somehow embodied in some kind of form that could be visible to Adam and Eve, but they didn't see him. They heard him, the Bible says. One commentator used the words, they, the rustle of God's step. And I like that, the rustle of God's step they heard. Some commentators and some translations would say they heard the voice of God. But the word voice is not there. You don't find the word voice at all there. Would you find the sound of a step, the sound of a step. And it's a sound they heard before. Probably many times they heard that sound before. I'm sure God perhaps came in the cool of day. That was God's practice to come to them, to meet with them as creation, and to commune with them. And, and, and on every other day that he did that, he met with them. Uh, it had to be such joy and anticipation as God would come and meet with them to talk with them. That'd be just joy. Can you imagine it? Joy and anticipation. God is coming. Yahweh Elohim is coming to talk with us, to, to, to commune with us. 
we are made in his image. And this is really cool for us to think, think like this, that because we can commune with the one who spoke all this that we see into existence, just with this powerful word, out of nothing, he spoke it all into existence. We get to commune with that one. But on that day, on that day, this day was different because of the fall, because they had sinned and they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed before God. So the Bible says that they, they hid, they hid from God. Then they heard the question from God. God said to them, where are you? Where are you? Why does God ask questions for which he already knows the answers? You ever think about that? God knows everything. He doesn't have to ask us questions. Many times God asks us questions so you and I can think and process, where are you? What are you doing? Where are you? So we process it. We're going to talk about that in just a moment uh, later on in the message. But here's a question God asks us, where are you? And Adam says, I was hiding uh, behind the tree because I was afraid. And oftentimes our fears will lead us to hide from God, doesn't it? That we hide because of our fears, because we're afraid. And the reason we're afraid, because we've sinned against God. And so rather than running to him, rather than anticipating the worship times we'd had with him and looking forward to the ones we're going to have in the future, we hide from him. We hide. We run from him. It's a horrible thing. But let's be face it. We all do it. We all run from God from time to time. We hide. I remember one author saying, at the fall of man, all of us began to now experience the pride. We didn't want our faults exposed, so we hide them. And Adam hid from God because he had sinned. He realized he'd sinned. We not only hide our sins from God, but we also hide our sins from each other, don't we? We have a very fragile uh, self-ego. We are not perfect, and we know we're not perfect. I mean, hopefully you know you're not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. But we don't want our, anybody to expose our imperfections, do we? We don't want anybody to let those out because we know we're not perfect. And I don't want anybody to know about my imperfections. And so what we do, what I do, what we all do, but I use myself as an example, what I do is when somebody comes up and says, Doug, I have a problem with you, and I say, what is that problem? I really don't want to know what it is, does it? I really don't want to know because I know I'm not perfect and I know I have problems, but being polite, I'm going to say, yeah, what is it? And they share the problems with me. It's because of my pride after they share those problems, and we all do this. It's our first inkling because I don't want my imperfections shown is what I want to do. I become defensive, so I lash out, and I might say, oh, yeah, well, you got problems yourself, and your problems are greater than mine, right? That's what we do. That's our first defense. That's what we do. And it's that age-old difficulty of not bringing our sin to God and kind of hiding it or stuffing it away somehow. And we think as we're hiding it somehow, that time in itself will get rid of that sin. It will take it away. It will just do that for us. And that sin itself will just disappear. That never happens. Time doesn't take away sin. Time doesn't take away those things we're hiding from, from God and stuffing it away from other people. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 8 says this. The psalmist is asking the question rhetorically. He says this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And what he's asking, God, where can I go that you're not there? Where can I go where you're not already there? Where can I go that you will not be, is what he's asking. And then he goes on in verse 8, says, if I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. This is the way that they would express and teach things in the Old Testament. They would choose two extremes. If I go to heaven, he says, you are there. If I go to the depths uh, uh, of the dead, Sheol, to the place of the dead, that you are there. So if you're there and you're there, the logic conclusion is that you're everywhere in between, right? That's what they're trying to get across. That God is not only there and there, but he's everywhere in between. And that's what he is. 
But it gets worse or it gets better depending on your point of view because Psalm 139 verse 2 also says this, You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. God knows when you get up in the middle of that ball game to go get a Diet Coke, whatever you get. He knows what you're doing. He knows it all. The scripture goes on to say that God knows those words before they even come out of your mouth. He knows them before they're even formed. He knows your words. Wow, when you, when you think about that, you say, how ridiculous it is then that we hide from God, right? We can't hide from God, right? That wherever I go, the presence of God is there. There's no thoughts that I can hide from God. There's nothing that I can stuff away inside of my heart or in a closet or someplace that God doesn't already know. He knows it all. And there's nothing I can hide. Wherever I go, whatever I have, God knows everything about you, all your sins, everything that you've done. He knows it all, and you cannot hide it from him. Therefore, he's saying, bring your sin to God because I already know it. I just want you to owe up to it that you did this and owe up to it and realize and agree with me that it's sin. So we're to bring our sin to God as our first point, but not only are we to bring our sin to God and find in God's grace, number two, we have to take responsibility for your sin. You have to own your own sin is what you have to do. Let's look at the conversation because the conversations are really kind of interesting where God really takes in the form of a very gentle cross-examiner. He's going to ask Adam two questions and he's going to ask Eve one question, what he's going to do. And Adam's going to choose to skip the first question. And that's not a guy, good idea when God's the questioner. And we need to remember that if God asks you a question, answer the question, right? Always answer the question. But the first question to Adam, God says, who told you that you were naked? And we're going to come back to that. That's a multiple choice question. Who told you that you were naked? Multiple choice, but there, are many cho- there aren't many choices there that he has to choose from. And I'm going to skip over that right now because Adam did not answer that question. God asked him, who told you were naked? He didn't answer, so we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So the second question God asked is, this one Adam sort of, sort of kind of answered. In verse 11, God said, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The first is a multiple choice. The second question is a yes or no. One word answer, that's all it takes. And if God asks you a one word type answer type question, just give a one-word answer, and you've got to use more than one word to answer it, you're probably not answering God's question, right? We probably aren't answering it. And same way as politicians today. Politicians ask them, did you do this or that? And if they don't answer either, if it's a yes or no question you've asked them, and they don't give a yes or no answer, what they're probably doing is giving some form of blame shifting, is blaming someone else or some other circumstance or something like that. So here's what Adam says. He sort of answers the, the second question, In verse 12, he says this, The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So that's classic. What he's doing, that is part of the same pride that's within every one of us. We all do that, right? We want to blame and not own our own sin, but we want to blame everyone else. We want to blame shift. That's what he did. It's not me, God. It's her. It's all her fault. He blames it all on her. It's her fault. And and we pass the blame. So Adam sort of answered the question without ever really saying he did. But the reason he said he did it, because the woman you put here with me, God, that's the reason I did this. That's the problem. Notice what has happened in a very short time that we see just happened in a situation earlier in chapter 2, where Adam says of this of his wife, of Eve, he says this about her. She is now bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. What he's saying here, God, she is wonderful. She's incredible. She's an amazing woman. This woman you gave to me is Eve. And now just the next chapter, he's saying this about this wonderful, incredible, amazing woman. He says, it's the woman here you put here with me, Lord. It's all her fault. He's blaming it. Turns right around on his wife, turns right around her and puts all the blame upon her. And he's saying this. Not only did Adam blame her, that she was deceived, but we see here, but Adam sinned willfully. He willfully disobeyed God. It wasn't because of what Eve did. Adam chose to disobey God is what we see here. But not only did Adam blame Eve, the woman, he blamed God. He said, God, you gave me this woman, so it's your fault. Blame shifting, what we call it. Blaming other people is what Adam's doing. He's blaming everyone except who? Himself. It's everyone else's fault. It's her fault. It's your fault, God. It's all your fault. It's part of our pride. We don't want to let it go. We don't want to let our pride go. And now God, what he's going to do is switch the questioning from Adam. Now he's going to go to Eve in verse 13. He starts asking Eve a question. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And what did she say to that? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. You can't make this stuff up, right? This really happened. This is what really happened right here. What we see in this passage. And we look at this and we say, is anything changed today? Has it changed at all today? Where you go to your children, maybe you go to your children, I'm just picking the children. You go to your children and say, did you do this? And what will they say? Yeah, but he made me do it or she made me do it, right? Is that what her children say? We do the same thing. We all blame shift. Did you do this? Yeah, but the reason is because you or him or her or whoever did it is blame shifting. Let's go back to that first question. After God asked Adam, where are you? And then God asked Adam, who told you that you were naked? And Adam never answered that question. It's about time that question gets answered. We want to answer that question this morning to find out who told them that. This, is, this one is a multiple choice, so we have a few choices that we can look at. The first choice is, is God. We have to look at it. Is God, we don't have many choices right now in the life cycle of humanity. There's only a few. But the first one, did God tell Adam he was naked? Let me hear you. Did he? No, don't be, don't be shy. No, God didn't tell him he was naked. He's the one asking, who told you you were naked? So the first choice, no, God didn't do it. The second choice we'd have to look at Satan, the wicked one. Did the serpent come to Adam and Eve and say you were naked? Did he come? No, he didn't come either. There's nothing in account that we can find that Satan would do this, nor would Satan do this because Satan always tries to deceive without giving the consequences, and this would be the consequence. So Satan wouldn't do this. The third one would be the obvious one. You'd come to the third option is, well, it's got to be Eve, right? Did Eve tell Adam well, you were naked? Where Eve came to the point and said, Adam, I noticed that you're naked. Or, or maybe Adam looks at her and says, you know, Eve, I noticed you don't have any clothes on either. And it came to that conclusion. Was it Eve that told Adam that you're naked? You guys don't know that one, do you? Yes or no? Was it Eve that told Adam you were naked? No. Yeah, be confident, be confident. <laughs> no. No, those three options, neither one of them told that. So may I suggest there's a fourth option, that Adam never even recognized his own voice from within, the voice of self-ego, the voice of selfishness, of self. And if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. It's toward the end. It's after the book of Hebrews. Go all the way toward the end of your Bible, James chapter 1, verse 13 and 15. If you can't find it, write it down, James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. It's a very important verse for us, for always to remember. It's about temptation. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. Keep your finger over there in Genesis 3. 
James writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. So would God tempt us? Does God ever tempt us? No, 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 never, never. God can't be tempted, nor will he ever tempt us. So if you're being tempted by evil, you know it's not God. God is not doing that. God is not trying to test you with giving you evil. He does not do that. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. It's his own desire, his own voice of ego, and it's easy in our time of weaknesses and our sin for you and I to say and buy that t-shirt, well, the devil made me do it, right? We like to say it. it's Satan's fault or it's this person's fault, and we cast blame on others is what we like to do. It's everyone else's fault except mine when I sin. I had a right to do that. I mean, I was justified in, in what I did. Or maybe it's even the circumstances where we blame the circumstances. And politicians do that all the time. They say, you took me out of context. And, and sometimes that's true, but it's not true every time. Or we want to blame, they hear people say, they want to blame the circumstances that you have to understand. There was a point in my life where I was very depressed. And it was a point in my life that thinking that the circumstances or the details of the circumstances somehow to cancel away this sin that they did. And I just want to clarify that. There's nothing that you go through that will cancel away the sin that you did. No matter how difficult or circumstance you're going through, doesn't cancel away the sin that you've done. No matter how, whatever it may be, it doesn't cancel away our sin. But it's that voice that, that we listen to that's on the inside that says, you can do this and you can get away with this. You can blame that person to blame that person. Or because you're in this circumstance, you can use the circumstance as your excuse. And you can go ahead and do this and get away with this. And it's that voice inside of us that we do it on our own volition, of our own free will. We sin. That we're enticed. And we do it. We can't blame anyone else. No matter how much we're tempted, you and I choose to sin. We choose to fall into that. Or it's that voice that's on the inside that sometimes, even in its times of conscience, say, you're naked. And you've sinned against God. You realize that you're exposed. Now you've sinned against God. We have to bring our sins to God. But that presupposes that we are going to own our own sin, right? If we're going to bring it to God, that presupposes that I own my sin. That presupposes that I'm going to take responsibility for my own sins and not blame on everyone else, that I'm going to own up to my sin. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12, I was thinking about this verse along with another one, and I'll read that one in just a moment. But listen to what it says. It says, you then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5.10 says basically the same thing. Let me read that. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, the body of Christ, whether good or bad is what it says. In other words, we'll all own our sin in that day. It's talking about that unconfessed sin that we're going to own on that day. Of course, that sin is going to be forgiven by Jesus. We'll have to, but if we haven't confessed that sin, we're going to have to give an account of what we've done. So many times we think that because I'm a believer in Christ, I don't have to confess my sin. That I can do what I want, and, and because Jesus has forgiven all my sins, that I don't have to confess it. But 1 John 1, 9 tells us, it's written to believers, that you and I are to confess our sin before God. So God can purify us from all unrighteousness and cleanse us. 
and take away the guilt and the shame that we have to confess it. May I suggest that it'd be so much better for us on that day that we confess it today than wait for that day. That we come before God and say, God, you know, I'm not going to blame anyone else. I own it. I did it. And confess our sin. Allow God to forgive us today. That's what he wants. As soon as you sin, he wants you to turn around and confess it. God, I messed up. Not to wait, but to confess it right away. And God is questioning us to basically delete us like he did Adam and Eve, what he was doing there. From the place of shame, those feelings of shame, look what I've done. Have you ever had that where you sin? You have that shame in your heart and mind? And then the next, to guilt. Understand we've sinned against God. I've sinned against him. And to confession, to cleansing, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And finally, to restoration is what God wants to lead to. And aren't you glad that we have a God with his, but by his grace, who by his grace, he leads you through that process by asking questions like he did Adam and Eve. They wouldn't have found the way. God had to lead him through that process is what he had to do. And he does that to you each and every day. Rather than saying to us, you blew it, you messed up, you failed. I gave you a, a command and you disobeyed me. Rather, we've got a God who out of his grace leads us through the process and blankets us with his forgiveness is what God does. He blankets us with it. In Romans chapter, I mean, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, it says this. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So confess now, deal with them now, own them now, own your sins now. Don't put it off. Own them now. God already knows you did it, so own it. The Bible says one day we're going to have to stand before Jesus. We're going to have to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. I don't understand all what this means. I don't know all the details of what that means. I know for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says there's now no longer any condemnation. But at that particular time, at the judgment seat of Christ, and by the way, the judgment seat of Christ is for believers. It's for all of us who know Jesus Christ, their Savior, that one day we have to stand before him and give an account to the things we've done while in the body since we've been saved. What did you do with this life that I've given to you? And we have to give an account for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. We have to give an account. And, and we, we can see, and it's for all of us that we'll have to stand there. You can see at least it could be the loss of rewards. At least it's going to be that. For any of that uh, the sin that we have not confessed in our lives, that we're going to have to own it on that day, and it could be lost rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 through 15, read it. It talks about that, that our works that we've done in the body, the things that we've done, the deeds that we've done, whether good or bad, are going to go through a fire. And if they're made of hay, wood, or straw, they're going to be burned up, and nothing's going to be left, and we're going to lose reward. But if it's made of gold, silver, and precious stone, it'll come through the fire, refined by the fire, and then what's left, we'll receive a reward. So at least it seems some some type of loss of reward that we will receive for the things done in the body, that unconfessed sin that I did not deal with here. God promised to forgive us of our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. We've got to bring it to him. We've got to say, God, I messed up here. All of our sins are forgiven. It's not about salvation. It's about the rewards. And give an account to God, why didn't you live the life for me here on this earth? What did you do with the life I gave you? That's what God's going to ask us. What did you do with that life? I gifted you and I blessed you. I saved you. You're part of the family. But what did you do? Did you just squander it? What did you do with it? We'll have to give it an account. So we, if we own it now, those sins now, we confess them, then there will be nothing then. So we'll be able to stand before God, according to 1 John, with confidence. Confidence. So what we need to do, we need to bring our sin to God and we need to own our sin. Take responsibility for our sin today, not blame everyone else. 
not blame the circumstance, but God, I willfully disobeyed you. Because every time you sin, you willfully disobeyed God. You turn your back on God and sinned against him. Nobody made you sin. There's no such thing. Somebody made, nobody made you sin. You did it willfully. And, and so, so the th- last point we have is finding God's grace. That's what we want. When we bring our sin to God, we, we take responsibility for your sin. The third point is you experience God's grace. Experience God's grace. We all want to experience God's grace, right? That's what we want. Finding God's grace. We don't even want to find it. We want to experience it in our life. God could have said, Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? And Adam said, I was so afraid, so I hid. And he, she, he said, she did it. She said, the serpent deceived me. And, and then Adam said, you put this woman with me. And then she said, the devil made me do it, right? Everybody's blaming. And God could have said, I was so generous to you that I said you could eat from any tree in the garden except one, but you chose to eat from that tree. You disobeyed me. So it's done. It's over. I'm done with you. Then I'm going to start all over. But I'm not going to start with you, Adam Adam and Eve. I'm going to start with someone new. You're done. Would God have been justified in doing that? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely he would have been justified in doing that. Just as he would be justified in our story, in our life, in our narrative. Would he not? Would he not be justified in saying, Doug, you sin, you're out of here. I'm going to start with someone new, but not you. Would God be justified? Absolutely he would be justified. But God forgives sin. God forgives sin. Praise God for that. You should have, amen, God forgives sin, because we're all sinners. If I could take you back to verse 8 and 9, I don't want you to miss this, this scene, this one point here. It's not in your notes. But man is hiding. Get this picture. Where is man hiding? Behind a tree. He's filled with shame. He realizes he's naked. He's hiding. He's afraid in all this. He's afraid of God, and he's hiding. Where's God? Think about that. Where's God? Where's God in all this? Remember this. God is seeking. He's seeking. It is God who's going after man, right? Man is hiding someplace. He's hiding from God. God goes after man, and out of his grace, to find man in his fallen condition, to restore him. That's what God does. And give him life, and give him his joy back again. That's what God does. That's what he does in our life. It's a perfect picture for us. God is seeking. He's the one that goes after man. We never seek God. Read Romans chapter 3. It talks about, in, starting, I think, at verse 10. We, there's no one seeks God. No, not one. It's God seeks us. And he's going after man to restore him. And David once prayed in Psalm 51. He said, Lord, restore me the joy of my salvation. And all of us have been there in our lives, haven't we? Everyone has been there. Where we sinned against God and the joy is gone and, and we're sinning and, and we, we hide it. We try to blame ship, blaming everyone else. And God is going to come after us. He's coming out of us because he loves us. Not to condemn us, but to restore us. To restore us. That's what he does. Because that's what God does. To restore us. How foolish that it is for me to hide from the one who wants to grant me his grace. How foolish it is for us to hide from the one who says, I've got all this grace I want to give you, but we hide. So many times where people are going through a difficult time and they're believers in Christ, or they've done something against God and they stop coming to church. And I never understand. It blows my mind away because it is God who will grant them his grace. It's God's the one that can forgive them. It's God's the one that can restore them. And he promises to do that, but they run and hide from him. And it's the church here is where they need to be so God can work in their hearts and minds. 
The story of Jesus himself, the Bible calls him the second Adam, right? The first Adam sinned. The second Adam did not. The first Adam is blame shifting and won't own up to his sin and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus says, give me your sin. Give me your blame. Give me it all. And on that cross, God took all of our sins and he placed them up on Jesus. All those sins that you try to hide from, from God, you try to hide them deep down in self, you try to stuff them in that closet, you got that closet filled with them. He takes all those sins, because God knows what they are, and he places upon Jesus. And Jesus on that cross, the Bible says, that he died on the cross for us and he took our place. Died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. He took your place. That's God's grace. That's God's marvelous, amazing grace. That's what that is. He took your place. He died for your sins, not for his, for your sins. That's God's grace that he gives to every one of us. And that's how would he apply it in a couple of ways. First, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, and uh, God is coming after you because he loves you and he wants you to be part of his family, and, and you're running after him, and the Bible says that God doesn't want anybody to perish, but everybody to come to him in repentance. And he's going to come after you, and he wants you to understand that God loves you. And he's not here to condemn you, but he's here to save you, that he died on the cross for your sins, paid the complete penalty for your sins. And right now, no matter what you've done, you can put your faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And he'll forgive you of your sins, right? That's what he promises to do. That's what he does. Secondly, once we've come to know Jesus, it's easy to get our feet dirty in the world, right? It's really easy to get our feet dirty. And sometimes those sins that we've committed might be as early as this morning. You've committed some sins. And sometimes those sins can be as old as 30 years old. Long, long time ago, we've committed those sins, but we stuffed them away. Why do we stuff them away? Because they're embarrassing. We don't want anybody to know about those sins. We don't ever want them to be brought up again, so we stuffed them away deep down inside. I don't want anybody to know, but we, we, we don't want to deal with it. But they're still there. And the enemy, Satan, knows about them, and he haunts us with them. How can you claim to be a Christian and have that in your life? Constantly, constantly haunts us with them. I've had people say to me, I can't bring my sin to God, that my sin is too great, that God can never forgive me of all my sin. And I think about that. I think, how insulting that must be to God that someone would say that. Because in essence, what you're saying when you say that, that our sin is too great for God's grace, that our sin is too enormous for the blood of Jesus on that cross, is what we're saying. That my sin, what I've done, is greater than when God says, I died for all the sins of the world, but mine's greater than that. That's what you're saying. There isn't anything that any of us committed that God in his grace can't forgive. Remember that. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing you can commit in the future. There's nothing you've committed in your past. There's nothing you've committed today that God in his grace can't forgive, that the blood of Jesus hasn't covered already. There's nothing you can do. God can forgive all sins. So every sin that you have, we can bring it to God because he wants us to. That's who God is. He wants us to bring all of our sin to him. If you don't know Jesus yet, this would be a wonderful time for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Accept him as your savior. Have all your sins forgiven through Jesus. If you do know Jesus, this would be a wonderful time for you to hold out that sin to God and say, God, I don't want to carry it anymore. This is a wonderful time for you to confess your sin to God. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if you don't know that verse, it's a wonderful promise to believers. 1 John was written about fellowship for believers in Christ. 
And he gives us this wonderful promise. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will, not might, he will forgive you of your sins. And he promises to purify you or cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God says, I will forgive your sins. Just confess it. You know, confession is, guys, God already knows you did it. You're not coming and telling him something he doesn't know. You're just coming and agreeing with God. I agree with you, God, what I did was wrong. And I'm owning up to it. I'm taking responsibility and confess it. And if you come and you confess that sin, you know what God's going to do? He'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. He'll forgive you every time. That's his promise. So let's come to the God who forgives and find his grace. But we have to come to him. We have to give it to him. We have to give our sins to him. We have to give ourselves to him. So let's come to the God and find his grace. And let's experience his grace. Not only do we find it, we want to experience his grace. And God's grace is experienced when we come and we confess our sins to God. And God applies his grace in our lives as I forgive you, and I restore you, and I cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and I purify you. That's his promise that we as believers come and we confess our sin. That's experiencing the grace of God. And we all need to experience God's grace, right? I need it in my life. None of us arrive and say, boy, I've never sinned any, ever. We've all still sinned in our, in our minds and our thoughts our motives many times, doing things that we shouldn't do or not doing the things we should do. We've sinned. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, there's no greater way than receiving the grace of God by accepting His Son, Jesus, as your Savior. So today, right now in the service, I want us all to not only find God's grace, but we'd experience His grace. Let's just spend some time before we sing the last song just surrendering our hearts and minds to Jesus. If you don't know Christ, your Savior, accept Him. If you do know, just spend time. We're all sinners, saved by his grace, right? None of us are deserving heaven. Only by his grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? So all of us have things in our lives that we've done, that we are doing, and God is a God of grace. So we're going to find God's grace and experience the forgiveness of God this morning by confession. We find that through, through confession, by bringing our sins to God, taking responsibility for our sins, and when we do that, we experience the wonderful, amazing grace of God. So let's do that this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come and we praise you. We praise you, God, that, God, you are pursuing God, that you never give up and you never let go and you seek us with, with everything that you have. Not only did you seek us, Lord, and came and sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, and he paid that full payment so we can have that relationship with you. And anyone that doesn't know you today, I'd pray that they put their faith and trust. But now that we've come to Christ and we accepted you, Lord, we still mess up and we still sin. But you will not let us go. You promised to seek us, to pursue us, and to come after us. Not to condemn us, but to restore us and ask all the right questions that we need to give an answer for, Lord. So, Lord, as you're asking those difficult questions, let us not hide from you. Let us not look to justify our sin. Let's just come and be honest. Who told you you were naked? That we would just be honest and say, God, I chose to sin. I own it. I take responsibility. And I'm asking for your forgiveness that we confess our sin. So, Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts and minds this morning, that if we have any sin, Holy Spirit, reveal it. Not that you want to condemn us, but you want to forgive us. You want to cleanse us from all the unrighteousness, and you want to restore us. And so, Lord, I pray for a restoration and healing would take place in our hearts and minds this morning, that we stop having the attitude of hiding from the God who wants to grant his grace and forgiveness to us. 
The only one that can truly give us his grace and forgiveness is you, and that's the one we hide from. Help us to change our hearts and minds. You're the one we should running, run to. The enemy has deceived us so much to think that we, when we sin, we've got to hide from you. But, Lord, that we learn that when we sin, we have a God of, God of grace and love and forgiveness. He will forgive us every time, every time we sin, all the time. So, Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts and minds this morning. Whatever we've done, whether we lied, we cheated, our motives was wrong, Lord. We're trying to get the glory and fame. We're trying to get above in our workplace, and so maybe we've lied about some things. Maybe we haven't been honest with our spouse on some things. Maybe our uh, children, we haven't been honest with their parents. Whatever it may be, Lord, whatever it may be that we've done. We cheated in work. We cheated in business. Whatever it may be that we come this morning, we confess it to you, and we find God's grace of forgiveness and restoration and healing that you promised to give us. That you take away the guilt and the shame of all that we've done. And we walk away restored and, and renewed. And we find the joy of our salvation, the joy of our, 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 our heart that you give back to us. Because it's that sin that rips it apart out of our hearts and out of our minds. So Lord, I pray that each one of us right now would just confess that sin and find anew with Jesus. It's simply as saying, God, I sinned. Please forgive me. God will forgive. So, Lord, I ask you to do a work in our hearts and minds. I pray for anyone that don't know Jesus Christ, their Savior. I pray that they may come into repentance and understand who you are, put their faith and trust in him. I pray that all of us repent of our sins, turn away from our sins, and turn toward you, God, and find the cleansing that you want to give us and purify us from all unrighteousness, Lord, and restore us. We're so thankful if we have a God of grace. We're so thankful, Lord, that you, how you cross-examined Adam and Eve. It could have been so much worse. If it would have been me, Lord, I would have probably struck him down. How dare you disobey, but not God. You're a God full of grace, amazing grace, wonderful grace. Grace that we don't deserve. And your mercy is, a, is amazing, Lord. Your forgiveness, uh, you forgive not just once, twice, but as many as times as needed. So, Lord, no matter what we've done, that we feel we can bring them to you, knowing that you will forgive. And, Lord, that we can be cleansed and now, Lord, we can worship you with our full heart and mind and worship you in spirit and truth as we surrender our hearts to you this morning. Do a work in our hearts and minds. If we're still confessing our sin, Lord, whatever it may be, through this next song as we sing, that we'd surrender our hearts and minds and be cleansed so we can leave here united with Jesus in fellowship and total communication with you, that our hearts and minds would might be restored in healing and cleansing uh, done through the power of the Holy Spirit by your grace. I thank you so much for each one. But we want to be honest in our hearts and minds this morning, Lord. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.